0: The podcast from Belmont Chapel in Exeter. Sharing the story, living the life. For more information go to belmontchapel.org.uk This evening we're drawing to a close our series in the Old Testament book of Esther entitled Resisting Empire. Now if you were here right at the start of the series I spoke about the fact that the author of the book appears to want his or her readers to notice a measure of order in the way that the narrative unfolds. Despite the fact that any reference to God is absent or at the very least hidden within the text, there are several clear pointers towards providence, many of which we have already explored in this series. And the storytelling within the structure of the book is held in perfect symmetry. There are keywords and visual clues in the first part of the story that are then reflected in the second, since its design is chiastic. The word chiasm, you may recall, comes from a letter in the Greek alphabet chi or chi, which is identical in shape to the English letter x. The shape of the letter illustrates the idea of a chiasm, where two separate lines meet together in the middle, creating a symmetrical shape. The story of Esther, as we've discovered, describes a breathtaking reversal of fortune for the Jewish people. Whereas the first five chapters of the book describe events that conspire to see the complete annihilation of God's people, not only, of course, in the capital of Susa, where the action of the story takes place, but also throughout the vast expanse of the Persian Empire, the second half, the remaining five chapters, flips the narrative on its head, hence the chiasm, since here we learn that the planned destruction becomes a providential deliverance. But as with other parts of the story, where we've uncovered state-sponsored abuse and the degrading sexual exploitation of women, the section of the story that Adrian unpacked for us last Sunday evening made for similarly uncomfortable reading. We don't like to hear about the people of God using what by any measure looks to be disproportionately extreme and vengeful acts of violence against those who don't even appear to be their enemies, since any level of bloodlust doesn't fit with our idea – of a loving and compassionate God. So if after hearing Adrian's talk last Sunday you'd like to delve a little bit deeper into the subject of Old Testament violence well then I'd recommend this book by Helen Painter entitled God of Violence Yesterday, God of Love Today since I think it's probably one of the most accessible books on the subject. Helen Painter lectures at the Centre for the Study of Bible and Violence at Bristol Baptist College. Okay, let's continue, shall we, with our story. If you'd like to follow the reading in one of the church Bibles, there are several in the red box at the, at the back behind you, please help yourself. If you have a Bible on your phone or you've brought a paper copy with you, uh, then please turn with me to Esther chapter 9. We're going to read from verse 20 of Esther 9 through to the end of the book to chapter 10 and verse 3. Now if you're listening to this online, now would be a good moment just to to pause the podcast, to get your Bible out and to read the passage. One of the predominant themes of the book of Esther, and most certainly the focus of many of the talks during this series, has been this idea of empire. Within the story we have seen how those who held power within the empire were able to conspire against God's people. The Jews living in the city of Susa and the countless thousands who were scattered across the 127 provinces existed as an ethnic subgroup within the empire of Persia. Whilst a huge number of Jews, as we thought about earlier on in this series, had chosen to return to Judah, many remained, preserving their culture and worship in the midst of a polytheistic pagan setting as best they were able to. And whilst our experience may be markedly different, there is a sense in which we as followers of Jesus, as citizens of God's kingdom, can draw some parallels between the culture in which we live and work and the situation experienced by God's people at the time of Esther. Whilst the tensions, of course, aren't anywhere near as extreme, we do have a tendency at times to choose to blend chameleon-like into the background. In our morning series that we looked at at the beginning part of the year, Frontline Sundays, we were encouraged to think of ourselves as red dots scattered amongst a sea of grey. God's people, citizens of the kingdom, standing out from the background, resisting the empire. This is what Paul writes to his Christian brothers and sisters in Rome. This is one of those verses that we had as a key verse during that series. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. So what lessons can we learn from the story of Esther and from the verses that we have read together this evening? What distinctive behaviours have we observed that might help us to consider what reflecting God's kingdom principles in our lives might look like? So the question is, is kingdom living really that different from empire living? And if so, in what way? We're gonna look at four things this evening. God's kingdom people are active in resistance, that's the first thing. They are spontaneous in celebration, that's the second, extravagant in welcoming, that's the third, and energized in hope, that's the final one, the fourth. So firstly, God's kingdom people are active in resistance. Earlier this week, uh, two just-stop oil activists threw soup at Vincent van Gogh's painting Sunflowers on display in the National Gallery in London. In response to this, uh, George Monbiot, writing in The Guardian, penned these words. Everywhere I see claims that the extreme tactics of environmental campaigners will prompt people to stop listening. But how could we listen any less to the warnings of scientists and campaigners and eminent committees? The peaceful resistance of these activists appears to horrify some people more than the collapse of our planet, which these campaigners are seeking to prevent. Do we really care more about Van Gogh's sunflowers than the real ones? And in the remainder of the article, Mombio points out that opinion is divided as to whether the action of these two young people is vandalism or a legitimate expression of submissive, non-violent resistance to a perceived injustice. The story of the book of Esther offers us several examples of resistance to empire from Queen Vashti's refusal in chapter one to be paraded naked in front of a group of the king's cronies, through to Mordecai's wise counsel and support of Esther as she pursued, through the privilege of position, a calculated and well-orchestrated stand against the injustice of the king's edict and Haman's machinations. Such a path of resistance, as we have seen from the story, is of course not concerned with personal honour, but instead it is Driven by the rights of others, it's a path that relies on open and constructive dialogue. One that doesn't shy away from placing the responsibility for injustice most squarely and most definitely where it deserves to be, at the foot of the oppressor. It's a path that refuses to compromise on truth or freedom and the right and equality of everyone. Nevertheless it's a path that may lead to self-sacrifice, since most people in power, whether institutional or personal, are likely to feel accused or ashamed or angry at having their status threatened and their actions questioned. Esther chose this path of submissive non-violence resistance. And she risked such a response. Chapter 4. She prepares herself to approach the king. She hasn't been summoned by the king. So that action in and of itself could lead to her death. Esther says to Mordecai, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. That's Esther chapter 4 verse 16. And whilst Esther risked a response from those in power that would be negative for her, we know that Jesus experienced all of those consequences to the full. As he taught and lived out God's love for all and most particularly for those who are marginalised and frail, those who are abused and misunderstood, Jesus experienced the malice and murderous intent of those whom he most threatened, those in influence, those with money, those with status and authority. In doing so he established what we come to understand to be an upside-down kingdom. It's one that subverts the progress of empire. It's a kingdom where the first will be last and the last first. It's a kingdom where whoever wants to be greatest must be the servant of all. This is what we discover, recorded for us in Mark chapter 10 and verse 45, Jesus' words. For even the Son of Man, talking about himself of course, did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom For many. All of which, of course, leaves us with a question In what ways am I, are you, being called to resist? How are we as a community being called to reflect something of kingdom values, those things that may be different from those values of the empire and the society in which we live? Secondly, then, spontaneous in celebration. God's kingdom people are called to be spontaneous in celebration. Now despite the horrors of the earlier chapters of the book, we now discover there's a spirit of generosity spontaneously breaking out amongst the people of God. In the verses that just preceded the section that we read, the writer tells us this, so reading from Esther chapter 9 verses 18 and 19. The Jews in Susa assembled on the 13th and 14th and then on the 15th they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. Those living in villages observed the 14th of the month of Adar as a day of joy and feasting, a day of giving presents to each other. And I think it's important to notice that It's only after the events of these two verses, verses 18 and 19, that Mordecai makes a record and issues letters informing the people that the newly appointed Feast of Purim would be celebrated annually. So it was not as in obedience to Mordecai's authority that the Jewish people established the custom, because they, as we read in verse 27, took it upon themselves to do so. It was not because of religious obligation or Levitical law that Purim was established, but rather it happened as a natural result of the exuberant joy that spontaneously broke out amongst them, a heartfelt response to God's gracious rescue. So here we see a people not simply going through the motions of ritual and religion, A sobering reality, of course, that we observe so often at other times within the narrative of the Old Testament. But instead, we see a people who are set free from duty, who are set free from law, a people who are rejoicing in what God has done for them and celebrating that freedom. This is what we read in Esther 9, verse 22. Their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. I wonder if God's kingdom people... Are we like that? Are we those people who celebrate what God has done for us through Christ? Then also we notice that God's kingdom people are extravagant in welcoming. Thirdly, I'd like you to notice that it was a time where consideration was given, not only to the poor amongst them, but also we see a welcome being extended to anyone to join in the celebration. Verse 27 again of chapter 9, the Feast of Purim is open to all those who join them. And such an openness of invitation is, I think, quite striking given the context of the feast's inauguration. It suggests, doesn't it, a a desire for reconciliation. It suggests a desire for dialogue. Everyone is invited to the feast. And it puts me in two minds... Two pass in mind of two passages of scripture. The first one is from the Old Testament. It comes from the prophecy of Isaiah. There we discover that God encourages his people to enlarge the place of your tent, stretch your tent curtains wide, do not hold back, lengthen your cords, strengthen your stakes. That's Isaiah 54 and verse 2. And the second comes from the New Testament. Paul writes to his friends in Galatia and he reveals why there is a need to do what Isaiah 54 2 encourages since there has to be room for everyone in the kingdom. Galatians three twenty-eight, a well-known verse it says there is neither Jew nor Gentile neither slave nor free nor is there male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now I think that in our heads we believe that message that everyone is welcome to the feast, that anyone can enjoy the benefits of kingdom living, that all, without exception, can find place within God's family. But I'm not sure we always necessarily allow what we believe in our heads to make a difference to our hearts. So lastly, the story tells us that we as God's kingdom people are energised in hope. One of the things that we've noticed right at the start of this series is that God's name never appears within the story of Esther. In the New Testament, the kingdom of God is described as both now and not yet, in one sense partially hidden. And whilst the full impact and extent of the kingdom remains under wraps, there is a very real sense in which you and I as kingdom citizens are being called to reveal its activity and promote its manifesto through lives that point people towards Christ and follow his example. However, I think it's easy to get discouraged, since positive change is often difficult to spot. Take, for instance, the fact that the book of Esther both starts and finishes with King Xerxes. He remains the king. The empire is intact. The symmetry of the story that we thought about earlier sets Xerxes at both the start of the first chapter and at the start of the last chapter. Esther, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, mirrors Esther chapter 10 verses 1 and 2 this is what we find in those two verses the first one from chapter 1 this is what happened during the time of Xerxes the Xerxes who ruled over 120 provinces setting stretching from India to Kush at that time King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa then from chapter 10 King Xerxes imposed tribute throughout the empire to its distant shores and all his acts of power and might together with a full account of the greatness of Mordecai whom the king had promoted are they not written in the books of the annals of the kings of Media and Persia. And despite the fact that the Jews at the close of the story of Esther are of course no longer subjected to persecution the nation of Israel will as history attests be subjected to further humiliation. Though they may have been delivered from death in the book of Esther, there will occur within the storyline of the nation the awful reality of non-deliverance and the reality of genocide, the horrors of the Holocaust. The theologian and writer John Goldingay in his commentary on Esther says this, whilst superficially circumstances have changed for now, Ultimately, history demonstrates not development, evolution and growth, but instead, through a pattern or cycle of the rise and fall of one ideology and empire being replaced by another, the dreadful, seemingly irreversible commitment of humankind to self-destruction. And yet, whilst Xerxes remains in charge of the empire, Mordecai's promotion to Prime Minister reminds us that sometimes circumstances or God-instances Give rise to unexpected opportunities for anyone, even perhaps one of us, to speak truth to power, although maybe not in such a dramatic way. And the way of submissive nonviolent resistance is, of course, the way of Christ. It is the challenge to live counterculturally, to swim against the tide to be one of those red dots in the sea of gray. It calls us to serve others, to demand justice. It calls us to live out the celebration of communion that speaks of atonement, at one A story of energising hope that is only possible through the victory of God's true King, Jesus Christ. And the book of Esther contains plenty of at-one-ment typology, since we see the curse and pronouncement of death defeated through the direct intervention of a rescuer. And it's that ultimate story, the one that we get to read about in the Gospels, where the true Alpha and Omega, the true king, who both starts and finishes the story, is revealed. He's the one who ensures that life will prevail over death. He's the one who invites us to fully participate in the adventure of his kingdom. He's the one who calls us to resist empire. He's the one who gives us something to celebrate. He's the one who invites us to share the story and live the life. Let's pray, shall we, as we close. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity, opportunity to look into your word. We thank you for the studies that we have shared as we've gone through the book of Esther. We thank you for all those who have worked and studied in order to just deliver these set of talks. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that we will be blessed through them. We pray that we will get to know you better. We pray that we will get to understand something of your Son, better and that we will live lives that represent more of your kingdom than they do the empire that surrounds us. Help us to be, we pray, red dots amongst a sea of grey, those who are prepared to swim against the tide, those who proclaim Jesus as king of our lives. Help us, we pray, to do that. In the name of your son, we ask. Amen.